Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 39, The End of Henry IV. This week we'll talk about the last years of Henry IV, which, as hard as that is to believe, holds one final humiliation that kept the pain that man had already endured. Before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is to sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. you find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to John, Jason and Dimitri who've already signed up. At the end of episode 37, Henry IV was finally allowed to return home thanks to the reconciliation with his southern German enemies, Welf IV and Berthold von Seringen. The price Henry had to pay for this reconciliation was fairly straightforward. He had to reinstate Welf IV as Duke of Bavaria, and most painful of all, except that Bavaria became a hereditary duchy, in other words, the king could no longer appoint the Duke of Bavaria, let alone manage the duchy himself, as he had done for the past 14 years. As for the Zeringer, who had himself elected as empty Duke of Swabia against Frederick of Hohenstaufen, the deal was that Berthold retained the title of Duke, even though he was no longer Duke of Swabia. He also received the royal demesne around Zurich, one of the most valuable of the crown's possessions. The net effect of that was that Swabia was divided into Ducal Swabia, ruled by Frederick of Hohenstaufen, and the Zeringer Duchy in the south. Some argue it was even a three-way split as the possessions of the Welfs in the eastern part of the duchy around Ravensburg were also outside ducal control. The reconciliation with his last enemies meant Henry IV could finally reign as emperor, recognized across the whole of the country. But his reign was now very different from the reign of his father and grandfather. Henry IV was now just a first amongst equals, a bit like his namesake Henry the Fowler had been. 200 years of the expansion of central authority had been reversed. The only right he still held on to was the right to invest bishops. These last 20 years the bishops were often the only support Henry IV enjoyed. Amongst the secular princes only Frederick von Hohenstaufen had been unwaveringly loyal. The rest had to be bought or to be otherwise placated. Before we get to the attack on this, the last real royal prerogative, there was one other thing that he believed his royal authority extended to, and that was the protection of the Jews. Those of you who have listened to the whole of episode 38 may remember that Henry IV had declared himself the protector of the Jews in the empire in 1090. That was probably less of an act of religious tolerance than an attempt to raise funds for the depleted imperial coffers. Whether it was greed or enlightened self-interest does not matter, because the imperial protection counted pretty much for naught when the Crusaders massacred Jewish communities in Worms, Mainz, Trier and elsewhere. Upon his return, Henry IV initiated an investigation into these horrific atrocities, specifically the events in Mainz. He explicitly condemned the enforced conversions and allowed the Jews to return to their faith. Pope Clement III seconded this by declaring their baptisms uncanonical, which means they could return to their faith without being deemed apostate, and that mattered because the sanction for apostasy was death. Henry then followed the money trail and detected that a lot of the property of the murdered Jews had miraculously ended up in the hands of kinsmen and followers of the Archbishop of Mainz, Rutart. 
In fact, a significant chunk of the assets had gone directly to this great prelate. Henry could not let that go, since Routard had been specifically ordered by the emperor to offer protection to the Jews. Routard had gone through the motions and offered the large Jewish community shelter in his fortified palace in the city, but when the troops of Emmerich of Leiningen came knocking, the archbishop and his knights fled by the back door, leaving the unarmed men, women and children to their gruesome fate. It transpired that the archbishop took 50 of the most prominent members of the community along and held them in a castle nearby. There, they were offered freedom for conversion and compensation, which most refused, resulting in them being killed or killing themselves in front of the archbishop. Before the investigation could be completed, the archbishop and his kinsmen decided to run for it, and hid in Thuringia for the next seven and a half years. That suited Henry well, who took over Mainz as one of his preferred residences. It suited the citizens of Mainz even more, as they thoroughly disliked their archbishop. This trend of the burghers throwing their bishops out and forming their own independent city-states is now really taking hold, with Worms and Cologne leading the movement. The next five years are a period of calm, most unusual for the reign of Henry IV. His rule is recognized by almost anyone. Once the Welf and the Zeringers had reconciled themselves to the king, the only truly Gregorian base was the Bishop of Constance, Gebhard. Though he remained the legate for the Gregorian Pope in Germany, he had no more influence outside his own diocese, where Henry IV just left him alone. With his authority recognized across the land, Henry IV could move on to plan for his succession. He was now 48 years old, older than his father and his grandfather when they died. His eldest son, Conrad, was still alive. You may remember that he had betrayed his father and joined the Gregorian party a couple of years earlier. Pope Urban II and Matilda had promised him the world, including the imperial crown. He was even given a rich bride, the daughter of Count Roger of Sicily. But once the alliance between Matilda and the House of Welf had fallen apart and Henry IV had returned to Germany, young Conrad served no further purpose. He was given a modest castle to live in with his bride and was left to rot. Nobody called on him and even the Pope, who had promised to be his guardian and advisor, never contacted him again. But he was still technically King of the Romans and the future Emperor, which meant he had to be formally deposed. That happened without much fuss in May 1098, and Conrad ultimately died a broken man in 1101. And at that same assembly, Henry IV pushed through the election of his second son, also Henry. That Henry was crowned King Henry V in Aachen in January 1099. By now, his father had become a bit suspicious after the treachery of his eldest. Hence, Henry V had to guarantee the Emperor's life and safety under oath, and was made to swear that he would never interfere against his will and command with matters of the kingdom, his honour and current and future possessions during his lifetime. Hmm, that sounds long enough and legalese enough an oath to be broken someday. Part two of the programme was to join the Peace of God movement. At the Royal Assembly in 1103, Henry IV declared a comprehensive peace to last for four years. He committed his nobles to preserve the peace for the churches, the clergy, the monks and the lay brethren, for merchants, for women and for Jews. Penalties for breaching the peace were severe. Perpetrators were to be blinded or would lose a hand for attacking and burning another one's house, taking prisoners, 
wounding or killing a debtor, persistent theft, or defending a peacebreaker. A castle where the peacebreaker had taken refuge could be destroyed and his benefice could be seized by his lord and his possessions taken by his kinsmen. That sounds like a piece of God his father could have declared, but in the end it was not. The administration of the penalty was not to be done by the emperor or his appointees, but by those who had sworn the peace. It wasn't the central authority that delivered the peace, it was the community, or so they hoped. This peace is sometimes seen as the first act of imperial legislation within the context of the Holy Roman Empire, a construct not of a central monarchy, but of a mixed monarchy built around cooperation rather than command. It sort of was the imperial peace or Reichsfrieden and its smaller cousins, the Landfriedens, which became regular instruments of imperial rule. Yeah, maybe the Holy Roman Empire starts here, at the Royal Assembly of 1103. It is not called that for another 150 years, but the foundations are being laid. The third item on his program was the reconciliation with the papacy. After Urban II's propaganda coup with the Crusades, and even more so after the fall of Jerusalem in 1099, the old conflict between the Pope and the Emperor was resolved. The Pope had won. No ifs, no buts. The last obstacle was anti-Pope Clement III. As long as Clement III lived, Henry could not accept the Gregorian Pope, since that would have invalidated his coronation. Clement III was kind enough to die in 1100, removing this particular obstacle. Though Clement's cardinals elected a number of successor antipopes and held parts of the city of Rome, Henry ignored them. So, all could now be resolved. Henry IV called a royal assembly in Mainz, where proposed to send envoys to the Pope to negotiate a settlement. And from 1100 to 1103 he made regular attempts to agree with the new Pope, Paschalis II. But that proved difficult. Yes, the question of who has the biggest was now resolved, but the Pope came up with a new set of demands, sent out in the Dictatus Pape, and that was the investiture of the bishops. This whole period of fighting between the Emperor and the Pope has been labelled the investiture conflict, but you may have noticed that I barely mention investiture much in the previous episodes. Yes, the issue made appearances all throughout the reign of Henry IV, going back to 1059, and it was usually included in the list of papal prerogatives. But in reality, it wasn't the big issue in the previous conflicts. All throughout these last 30 years, Henry IV had continued to invest bishops, and the Gregorian popes would happily receive any bishop into their party who had been invested by Henry IV, as long as he swore allegiance to the Pope. And several of the reformed popes were present at investiture ceremonies performed by the Emperor and kept stumm. As the Emperor was down, the Pope saw the opportunity to push it on one further. So, what was the issue? The simple way of phrasing the question is, who appoints the bishops and abbots? But the devil here is in the detail. And it has to do with the way the imperial church system had evolved over the previous two centuries. The German bishops are both religious leaders for the people in their diocese. At the same time, there were feudal lords over the counties, castles, privileges and estates that had been granted to their church. 
So under the early Ottonians, the process of making a bishop consisted in two separate acts. Part one was the election as a religious leader by the congregation, specifically by the cathedral canons. And once elected, the bishop would then ask the king or emperor to be enfiefed with the various secular rites of the bishopric. These two separate appointments were represented by the ring as the sign of the religious marriage of the bishop to his diocese and the staff as his sign of secular power. That sort of made sense, reflecting both the religious and the political dimensions of the role of the bishop. But as time went by, the weight of the king and the emperor in the decision, who would be bishop, had become ever more significant. The canons were aware that the king could refuse to enfeef their chosen bishop with the lands, which would make them all suddenly very poor. Hence, they would ask the emperor for guidance in advance of an election. That then mutated into a process of direct orders from the king to elect so-and-so. Finally, under Henry III, they dispensed with the niceties entirely, and the king would invest his bishop directly with both the ring and the staff. For the popes who saw themselves as the leaders of Christendom and the immediate superiors of the bishops, the system was unacceptable. How could a layman appoint a church leader, in particular a layman whose morals were not just in doubt, but who was even excommunicated? On the other hand, Henry IV could not relinquish the right to appoint bishops. That was literally the only power base he had left. The crown lands had been diminished, and after the disaster in Saxony earlier in his reign, there was no chance of building his own territorial power base. We are at a complete impasse. Both sides wanted to come together, but they cannot get over this hurdle. Henry IV will send message of the message of peace and reconciliation to Pashalis II, whilst at the same time investing bishops as before. Pashalis never writes back. Instead, he calls him the chief of the heretics, and grants his soldiers fighting against Henry in the constant border conflicts the same absolution Crusaders received for going to Jerusalem. In 1102, he solemnly repeats Henry IV's excommunication at a council in Rome and again releases everyone from their oath sworn to the king. Henry's response was to brush up his PR. He would make a big show and dance of his efforts to protect the priests and abbots against their rapacious secular neighbours he would make another string of donations to the churches of Worms and Speyer. The cathedral in Speyer is now reaching its completion as the most extraordinary building that still stands today. And he talks about going on pilgrimage to the Holy Land to atone for his sins, and he even writes to his godfather, Abbot Hugh of Cluny, that he wants to do penance for his acts that ruined the unity of the Holy Church. Did he mean that? Maybe he did. He's now really old by the standards of the time and had been through the ringer so many times. I'm willing to believe he had had enough. All he now cared about is leaving the empire to a successor in a reasonable shape and the conflict with the papacy resolved. And most people in Germany agreed. 30 years of civil war had been enough and nobody wanted a repeat. But as the failure to resolve the investiture conflict dragged on, the outward appearance of peace and stability hit some profound disagreements. And all that came to a head at an assembly in Regensburg, capital of the Duchy of Bavaria, in the winter of 1103-1104. Many princes from all over the realm joined the emperor and his son for great festivities. And one of them, Count Sieghard of Burghausen, a rich noble from southern Bavaria, showed up with an unsuitably large number of retainers. 
He argued he needed so much protection because the court was too friendly to the Saxons and Franconians and that he feared for his life. Well, he may have been right about that. On the 5th of February 1104, Count Sieghardt was murdered in his lodgings in Regensburg by a mob of ministeriales. Ministeriales, you may remember, were unfree knights who were obliged to follow orders of their owners, usually princes, bishops or the emperor himself. But they weren't just salaried soldiers. They had received fiefs to fund their weapons and cover their expenses, and so they would build castles on these lands and over time became indistinguishable from actual knights. According to some chroniclers, the ministeriales had been enraged by some judgment Count Sieghardt had made in respect of one of his own ministeriales. It was clearly not a smart move to antagonize a group of heavily armed thugs with a chip on their shoulders for not being real knights. The ministeriales besieged the house of Count Sieghardt for six hours, and even entreaties of the Crown Prince Henry V could not calm them down. The ministeriales finally broke in and killed the Count and his household. Public opinion blamed Henry IV for his murder. Sicard was a guest of the emperor and was hence under his protection. Henry IV had sponsored the ministeriales throughout his reign, and his voice should have carried favour with them. In other words, Henry IV had failed to do his job, which led to the accusation that he had been condoning the murder. Feuds broke out across the empire, and particularly in the northern provinces of Bavaria, where many of the local counts had Gregorian leanings. The rebellion then extended to Saxony, where another count apprehended the imperial candidate for the Archbishopric of Magdeburg. It is civil war again, and Henry IV musters an army at Fritzlar in December 1104. And in the night of December 14, 1104, young King Henry V, son of the emperor, and sworn to obey him in all his commands, leaves the imperial camp. He runs for Bavaria, where he finds support amongst the relatives of the murdered Sieghardt. Henry IV has to abandon his expedition to Saxony and returns to Mainz. And Henry IV's enemies rally round his son. The Pope, who had almost given up hope to unseat Henry IV, was clearly surprised to receive a letter from young King Henry V offering allegiance in exchange for support in his fight with the father. He also urgently needs to be absolved from his solemn oath to obey his father, an oath he had made before the whole of the realm and on one of the most precious relics and regalia of the land. Without absolution, his soul and his rebellion would be lost. But hey, that's one of the easiest things to sort out. Pascalis II's argument is simple. Henry IV had been excommunicated since, like, forever. What is an oath to an excommunicate? Just blah, blah, blah. Being absolved meant that more malcontents could now join King Henry V's banner. And malcontent the Saxons always are. Then there's Archbishop Rutgar of Mainz, who is another supporter, as is the nominal leader of the Gregorian party in Germany, Bishop Gebhard of Constance. Most of the year 1105 was spent in military walkabout, whereby Henry V failed to successfully challenge his father, but gradually gains control of southern Germany. One coup was to get hold of the 15-year-old Frederick II of Swabia, the son of Henry IV's great ally Frederick of Hohenstaufen, who had died the year before. The elder Henry made a last attempt to take Regensburg with the help of the Austrians and the Bohemians, 
But after three days of a standoff outside the ancient city, Henry IV was betrayed by his allies and had to flee back to his one loyal area he still had, the cities of the Rhineland, namely Mainz, Speyer and Cologne. Speyer fell at the end of October and Mainz was considered too dangerous, so he retreated towards Cologne. His son caught up with him near Koblenz. Father and son finally met, and first the elder Henry fell to his knees and begged his son to end the inhumane persecution. Then his son fell to his knees and said he would make peace with him if only he could reconcile with the Pope. The father accepted come to a royal assembly in Mainz to debate the issue with the nobles and subject himself to whatever conclusion the assembly would reach. On that promise of safe passage to Mainz, Henry IV dismissed his army and joined the camp of his son. On the first day, his advisers told him that they feared his son would break the oath and imprison him. So he confronted him, but Henry V repeated his guarantee to take him to Mainz. And then, on the second day, the number of armed men in Henry V's entourage increased. So the father asked the son again, Are you taking me to Mainz to state my case? And again the son guaranteed the Empress safety. And on the third day, well, do I have to tell you? Yes, and for the third time Henry V guaranteed his father's safety. Which meant, on the fourth day, Henry IV was imprisoned in the castle of Böckelheim. Hesgola was a particularly Gregorian-minded bishop who had little regard for excommunicate imprisoned emperors. The former ruler's followers had been dismissed except for three laymen. He was left without a bath and unshaven, but worst of all, without being allowed communion during the holy days of Christmas. There was no way Henry V would let his father appear in Mainz, a city staunchly supportive of the old emperor. He was allowed to come before an assembly in the Imperial Pfalz at Ingelheim, but that was an assembly of Henry V's supporters. All the undecided and the supporters of the old king were left in Mainz. Henry IV tried one last time to get himself out of the pickle he was in by displaying excessive penance. In a rerun of Canossa, he threw himself at the feet of the apostolic legate, confessed his sins, including his unjust persecution of the apostolic see, and even performed the prescribed abdication. He then begged the legate to give him the absolution, having done all that was required of him. And if the man in front of him had been the Pope, Henry IV would probably have been absolved from the excommunication, letting him fight for another day. But the man in front of him was a mere apostolic legate, who came up with the eternal rebuttal of the bureaucrat. I do not have the authority to release you from the ban. I will write to the Pope, who will surely acquiesce to your request. And even when Henry claimed that he was in immediate mortal danger, running the risk of dying without reconciliation to the Church, the legate remained unwavering. No can do. Do I need to tell you that under canon law he had been obliged to absolve the king under these circumstances? I presume you've heard enough about the Gregorian papacy by now to know the answer to that. As Henry IV had now abdicated, his son Henry V was crowned in the Cathedral of Mainz with the regalia he had forced his father to surrender, and by the self-same Archbishop Ruthard of Mainz, who still had the blood of hundreds of Jews on his hands. Henry IV was left in Ingelheim, a political and probably also an emotional wreck. At some point, 
he realized that his son could not let him live much longer, and he fled, first to Cologne and then to Lothringia. I have no idea how he did that, but somehow, even after this last hammer blow, Henry IV did not give up. He retired to Liège, and when Henry V sent troops to capture him, his allies beat them. He then returned to Cologne, where the citizens urged him to resume his role as emperor. When his son came to besiege the city, he had to retreat twice, experiencing heavy losses. The father began to rebuild his power base, and some disaffected nobles and bishops joined his side. He even opened up the possibility of giving in on the royal investiture to split the Gregorian party. Things were looking up for old Emperor Henry in the spring of 1106, when he was suddenly struck down by an illness. He died after nine days in Liege, surrounded by his closest friends and advisers, having received the last rites. What a life! Henry IV had been emperor from 1056 to 1105, 49 years in total. In that time, he was abducted by a faction of his nobles, abandoned by his mother, forced to marry a girl he saw as a sister, betrayed a hundred times by his nobles, forced to stand in the snow for three days to do penance, stabbed in the back by his eldest son, publicly accused of the worst misdemeanors by his second wife and finally deposed by his youngest. Where is the scriptwriter to sell the story to Netflix? Henry IV was initially buried in the Cathedral of Liège, but was soon exhumed as the archbishops and bishops of the realm objected to an excommunicate to be laid to rest in consecrated ground. His body was then buried in unconsecrated ground outside the city. A few weeks later, Henry V demanded for his father's remains to be brought to Speyer, but the citizens of Liège tried to keep hold of the body, who they began to believe to be sacred. They would touch the bier for a blessing and spread the earth from his grave on the fields to ensure an abundant harvest. Finally, one of Henry IV's most faithful servants was able to extract the body and transport it to Speyer, where it was placed into a stone sarcophagus that was kept outside his magnificent cathedral for five years. Only once his son had achieved a breakthrough in the conflict with the papacy that was from now on indeed an investiture conflict did he obtain absolution from the excommunication. Henry was finally buried in 1111 in that magnificent cathedral he had built. His son held a eulogy for his great and beloved father, the Emperor Henry IV of happy memory. Next week we will look at how Henry V, champion of Pope Paschalis II, finds himself caught in the same gridlock that prevented his father's reconciliation with the Mother Church. I hope you will join us again. And in the meantime... Should you feel like supporting the show and get hold of those bonus episodes, sign up on Patreon. The links are in the show notes or on my website at historyofthegermans.com.